0: Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey everyone, it's season four of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, bringing you evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your nutrition game to the next level. How is everyone doing out there? How is quarantine life treating you? I hope you're well in self-isolation. I hope you're making the most of this time in whatever way that you can. And of course, mindset is a crucial element in human health and performance, and it's really being exposed at times like these, chinks in our mental armor, which actually brings to mind the, the famous Epictetus quote, Circumstances don't make the man, they only reveal him to himself, and I think for a lot of us, quarantine life or self-isolation is providing some of those circumstances, and so on that note, today we're talking mental performance, and I've got Mr. Bryce Tully, the lead mental performance coach for the Canada Basketball Women's Team, as well as a sport science staff member for the Hockey Canada Program of Excellence on the show. Bryce is a wealth of knowledge, and in today's episode, he's going to chat about the value-skills-traits model and how to apply this when supporting and dealing with athletes. We'll discuss dealing with athletes who are wired differently, leader-follower dynamics, and the goal of entrenchment, what the rate of change is in these traits, values, and skills, and how things can change between individual and team sports. Bryce also talks about the difference between rules versus values, and why that matters, and of course, the power of stories. You can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at Podcast.com, Season 4, Episode 8. And if you're interested in more on the topic of mental performance, then you can circle back and check out Season 3, episode 24 with Dr. Igor Grossman talking intelligence versus wisdom in resolving complex. Season three, episode five with Dr. Fergus Connolly, Winning Habits, Adaptability, and 59 Lessons. And as well, season two, episode 35 with Canada Basketball's Dr. Peter Jensen talking sports psychology, energy management, and the champion's mindset. Awesome. This episode is sponsored by my best-selling book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. Mike Robertson, co-owner of IFAS, says, Peak pushes the envelope. If you want to better understand the numerous ways you can positively impact your athletes, Peak is a must-read. You can check out more of those expert blurbs at drbubs.com forward slash peak. And if you want to share some feedback, Please do use the hashtag GoPeak on social media, and please remember to tag me in at Dr. Bubs on all social platforms. All right, let's do this. Season four, episode eight with Mr. Bryce Tully. Enjoy. Bryce, thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: Oh man, thanks for having me. I'm excited.
0: Well, listen, maybe we can kick things off here today with you telling listeners a little bit more about your background and your journey to your current roles today.
1: Cool. Um, Yeah, so I'm a mental performance coach. Um, I work as part of the um, Canadian Sport Institute Network. So basically, you know, I work as a sports scientist um, alongside lots of other colleagues who service our national teams here in Canada. Um primarily I work with our women's national team in the sport of basketball so I'm spending a, a ton of time with them I'm I'm fully integrated with that team so I I go everywhere they go and connect with the athletes quite a bit in between phases and in between competitions and um anything that needs to be done in in the um, psychology space in, in that program I take the lead on that so that's been a really cool experience. Um, so far I, I kind of hopped on there after, uh, the Rio Olympics in 2016. So pretty much four years now I've been involved, um, with that group. Um, other than that, you know, I, I do spend, I have gone to multiple world championships with different hockey Canada groups on the men's side. Um, I've gone to multiple world championships with our canoe kayak national team. Um, and then, you know, obviously aside from that, lots of things, more locally and and work with as many people as I can to keep master in the craft, I guess. But um yeah, that's that's kind of what I do. Um I have a master's degree in kinesio well, a master's of science in, in kinesiology from Dalhousie University and and my thesis was focused on sports psychology and things like attention and imagery. So um definitely not a super skilled researcher, more of an applied person. So I hope that's uh, a welcomed perspective on this podcast <laughs> absolutely man.
0: absolutely I mean,
1: knowledge so, applied
0: uh, is is what we're after here and you know right um you know you'd, you'd sent over the schematic there the model around this intersection between values and skills and traits and i'm going to mm-hmm. put that up in the show notes so people listeners have a look at that even before this conversation to really orient yourselves and so bryce maybe to kick things off here, you know, where should we start in this model to start to unpack things? You know, we're going to touch on each of these factors, but where is a good place to start between the values, skills, and traits uh, when we're talking mental performance?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, it's uh, this is a really cool intersection, and I'm I'm really happy we're talking about it. it I think it's an important topic, um, you know, in lots of different contexts, but in high performance sport because those three factors—values, skills, and traits—are all in their own way, um, directly related to our motivational system. So, you know, basically like, why do I enjoy taking part in this activity and being in this environment when you start there and you, then you kind of trace it back. It's always really connected to not just one thing, but those three things. Um, and you know, a little more specifically, I think those three factors are in my opinion at the core of all cultural breakdowns or all, um, you know, cultural mastery in a way. So, um, you know, if there's ever something that's really gone astray in a team culture, and that could be the players or the staff or the organization um, as a whole, it normally traces back to these three things because in the end it's just humans working together and all humans have values that are really meaningful to them but not the same as everybody else. All humans have traits that are um, really distinctive but not you know the same as anybody else and everyone seems to be on a different um spectrum in terms of the skills that they have both mentally and physically so i think they're really important all three of these things play a huge role in in performance
0: yeah it's interesting to see when we look at these intersections when you look at resilience vulnerability creativity Mm. and so you know if we're you know, if a coach is listening in or, or someone who works on a performance staff, when we in a perfect situation when we talk about building out a team, you know why should we be considering each of these factors or is there a place to even begin with, with one being more influential than others?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really great question. Um I guess I'd start by saying, I I think in sport performance, and this is just my opinion, so it may not be the same as everybody else, but I think in sport performance and in sports science, the default kind of mode that we all have is that everything is a skill. It's, you know, it's a really like humanistic way to look at things. Um, It's motivating to see things that way. And, you know, in the spirit of growth mindset, most high-performing people in sport want to treat things that way so that they can, you know, convince other people they can get better at things or know themselves they can get better at things. But I I think um, just by, you know, the nature of how people work together, this default view ends up making our lives much harder when it comes to things like culture and social dynamics. And culture and social dynamics are you know, it, it's like, it's like water, like water takes the the shape of anything you pour it into. And culture and social dynamics are kind of like that. They're always happening. It doesn't matter if it's, um, you know, a conversation in the therapy room with a few other people around listening. It doesn't matter if it's a coach intervening in the biggest moment at the Olympic games, there's always these dynamics at play. So I think it's really important to, to consider them, them all, not, not just look at skills, but look at, the things like, you know, who is this person? Um, what really motivates them? What's going to drive them? Um, how can I connect best with with that part of them? And, you know, obviously these three things kind of change at different rates. And, you know, I guess that's really important because there's a hierarchy of kind of rate of change. So if you look at personality traits, kind of that like hardware, if you look at personality as hardware those are like built in um mm-hmm. really inherent inner things that they're going to take a really long time to change like it you know if you set out on a mission as a as a coach or as a, as anyone trying to work with somebody else to change someone's personality to better fit your personality that's a really tough task so sort of like taking I mean, an introvert yeah, and yeah,
0: saying we definitely. want extrovert qualities or or, or or vice versa those things are going to be more hardwired correct
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I've seen this so many times where people get so frustrated trying to work with somebody else because they're just wired differently. And this is where this cool intersection happens is the skill of empathy, which is an emotional intelligence skill has to become really, really relevant. If two people who are wired completely different are going to work really well together. Mm hmm. So I'll, I'll give you an example of that that just kind of recently came up. So as part of our um, Tokyo pursuit, um, we've done a, a thing called Strengths Finder. So a lot of the, the athletes and staff have done this personality, it, I guess you, you'd mostly look at it as a personality traits finder. And so one of our coaches, Carly Clark, who's this amazing coach from Ryerson University, one of her traits... That was revealed is that she's very deliberative so she takes her time when making big decisions she likes to have like lots of perspectives now I'm on the other hand in a completely different category I was I was kind of tagged as an activator. so I like to take action and strike while the irons hot these are very very different personality tendencies and as soon as we did this Carly and I looked at each other and we're like oh my god this is the root of so much kind of cultural and social conflict and as a result, her and I have had to learn to anchor our relationships in values like collaboration and excellence. So if, if we're really different in our personality traits, what can we you know, come to common ground on and what do we both value despite how we're wired? And collaboration and excellence are two of those things. And then you pile on top of that the skills that are needed to really make this work. Like the skills are like the glue between these things and skills like empathy and self-awareness then you've got kind of that full package of like now we're we're ticking now we're working well together but if we just looked at the traits or just looked at the values or just at the skills the full picture wouldn't be there
0: yeah so many great things to unpack there i mean maybe if we start with that culture side of things um you know from an evolutionary biology standpoint talking with guys like dr andrew king at swansea university he Talks a lot about animal models and how you know this leader follower dynamic, and if we get enough leaders, then then that sets the quote unquote culture, and and every you know mm-hmm. everything, everything moves smoothly. And of course, if we transition that to sport, we have you know the New Zealand All Blacks or back in the early two thousands, the Boston Red Sox with the the no dickheads rule. Right? It was like you could mm-hmm. for, for every kind of I don't I forget if it was maybe four to one for every four you need four quality guys to offset that one personality that might start to to pull things in opposite directions. And I found it fascinating because Dr. King would talk about um, meerkats. I think it was that would, Mm -hmm. they would actually forcibly evict a member of their group that was not behaving in the way that was, you know, appropriate for that group, which I thought was, (laughs) I thought was fascinating. Um, So so if we talk culture and this sort of leader follower dynamic, you know, is that something that we're, you know, a coach or practitioner, we're just given this deck of cards and we're, you know, if we, if we don't have enough leaders, we're going to have to be putting more things into place to kind of support this team dynamic or within this model here, do we have enough tools to be able to, you know, create that sort of desired, uh, culture, if you will.
1: Oh man. Yeah. Geez. We just keep digging and digging down to like the the coolest areas here. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I'd start by kind of reinforcing that, that the skills are always going to be the glue that holds, um, really diverse values and traits together. Mm-hmm. So that has to be there in, in any group um, to, to build on your leadership follower thing. So the way I look at that is y- you almost have to to take it um, from the lens of entrenchment. So you're trying to entrench athletes in a culture and mm-hmm. to achieve entrenchment, everybody has to be on board. So What you're aiming for here, and that that includes every single person in your environment at at all times, at any level of the organization, there's certain behaviors that kind of funnel up to certain big organizational values that have to be upheld at every level. And what you're trying to do there is you're trying to instill this sense of like, well, everybody seems to believe in these things, so I better too if I wanna thrive in this group. Mm -hmm. Right, so you're creating this vibe of, geez, it really doesn't seem to be acceptable in the, in this group to not value respect when we communicate, let's say. Like, if I don't do that, I, I'm getting the vibe that I'm not really going to belong here. And that sounds kind of harsh to say it that way, but I think in the best cultures, you do see this sense of entrenchment. It's like you just get enough, you know, hot sticks in the fire that are that are burning that if you put a wet one in, it's just going to catch quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. But you
1: can't have like... You know, fifty percent wet sticks in there, and, and some fire sticks goes burning. Out pretty quick, that right? fire is going to either go out, or it's going to take forever to get it going. Now,
0: that's a great, great metaphor. And, and the other piece I wanted to, to touch in on with you was around that idea of empathy, self-compassion, because uh, again, some conversations around this idea of being able to take a third person's point of view you know seeing things from somebody else's point of view and some of the work by Igor Grossman around wise reasoning and you know he'd mentioned things around you know in today's um, you know not not millennials but today's group of young people obviously they're becoming more and more Mm. independent which is which is terrific Um, but also this use of these of devices and social media creates more individualization which does then tend to lead us to more sort of self-interest and, and narcissism versus mm-hmm. versus thinking of the other person and, and taking their perspective. And so I suppose it's kind of, you know, you, what's your opinion around, and maybe we can take this on a couple levels, like between coaches trying to have that sort of being able to view things through their athletes' eyes, or even with, with younger, whether it's practitioners or athletes, you know, is there... Mm-hmm. You know, what have you seen in, in your dealings and and, and what, what kind of strategies could people start to lean on?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know what I've noticed that I guess took me a little bit by surprise. Um, most people who, you know, work um, with me or people I work with know that, you know, I don't really spend a lot of time on my phone and I, I don't spend a lot of time on social media and when i got involved with canada basketball um, one of the first things that i had proposed that we do in order to to build our sense of connection to one another um, and i should preface this with you know i really believe that somewhere in the range of 70 percent of behavior can be influenced most by the environment so again in that kind of spirit of entrenchment how do we create an environment that's that you kind of slowly drip um, these, these, uh, situations where certain behaviors emerge and then it just becomes normal. Like that's how we do things around here. And this topic that you just brought up is one of them. Um, one of the things I had proposed was no phones at team meals at all. Mm -hmm. So, so don't even bring them like, it's not like, you know, have them in your pocket and you can feel it buzzing. It's leave them at the front of the room on a table and put them on silent or leave them in your room. And, you know, you get a lot of um, resistance on these things, obviously, when you first do them, especially with, you know, a group of athletes who are somewhere between like 18 and, you know, 30, basically, Mm -hmm. um, who spend a lot of time on their phones and are really in that world that you just described. And for like literally two years, there was resentment, there was, you know, like, why are we doing this? And then slowly but surely, you could start to see things change and you would see you know we get in the on the bus to go to practice and people are continuing on a conversation that started at lunch and then we get to practice and the players you know have these funny ideas for how to do like a game and warm-up that came up at dinner or and so it just starts to really you know gain some traction and then the really cool part of this was we we went to a, a world championship in spain and we went to the the meal hall where kind of all the teams were eating in the hotel. And there are some moments where all the teams are eating together. And you look around and these teams are buried. Like they're just buried in their phones. They're not looking at each other. <laughs> they're not talking. They're like shoveling food into their face, just buried in their phone. And our leadership group on our team came to us and said, the, the, the imagery of this is like, really now starting to click with us as to why this is so important. When you see another team look like that and then think that we looked like that before, it it really hits home that this is effective. So anyway, that kind of went on a tangent around the the phone piece. Um, But the thing that I'm really surprised by is there's kind of this modern push, modern um, coaches coming into the mix who use their phone so well to better connect with their athletes. And I was like judgmental of it at first because I was someone who tried to not be on their phone and not get carried away in social media for the right reasons, like to, you know, stay present and experience things as they happen. And then I started realizing there's like all these conversations going on about how people connected over Instagram between coaches and and athletes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm actually missing out here. Like the coaches who are riding this wave and doing a good job of it are better connected with these, these athletes than I am. So it's, I mean, that's the direction I think it's gone um, more than anything else.
0: It's such an interesting topic too, isn't it? Because it's, like you said, it's almost on a knife's edge of we want to be able to be in this world and connecting because, again, most athletes and young people are going to be, this is how they communicate, right? Just on the phone and oh yeah. So we want to be part of that. But then at the same time there there are these 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 negative repercussions to to this. And so, you know, I'm when
1: mm-hmm. you see
0: teams like um, you know, the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals deciding that we're gonna have every half an hour, you know, it's a phone break for the for the athletes, you know, in your opinion, you know, I guess where's that balance between allowing us to use a language that the athletes are communicating with and then leverage that but then on the flip side of just, you know, um, sort of giving mm-hmm. in, for lack of a better term, to to what these you know, individuals are doing, you know, at, at a cost, mm-hmm. you know, where, where's that? Uh, obviously, a t- difficult question to answer, but, you know, in your opinion, kind of where is that? <laughs> where is that maybe sweet spot of, of how we can... Um, Enable those conversations without them taking over because it is you know once it gains momentum you you end up with everyone at the dinner table looking at their phone.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a really big one. Um, I, I have seen what you're referring to. You know, I've seen these articles on on NFL coaches saying that they do 20 minutes of video and then there's like a 10 minute phone break. And I've I've also heard people compare it to you know, on a more biological level to smoking or other addictions. And how do you think your people would perform if you, you know, if they, if they were smokers and then you just made them quit when they came to training camp, mm, <laughs> which is, yeah, it's I, I think, a, a, a really dramatic yeah, <laughs> way to look at it. Um, I think it's a balance. Um, I don't think there's, there's any, it's a lose lose. If anyone dives in and goes, this is just, you know, we're just taking, we're just taking your phones the entire time. And we've put all these really strict rules on when you can use it. And I, I don't think that's, um, that connection and,
0: pretty quick, right?
1: Yeah. I think it, it breaks down. It, it basically is like this symbolic moment of like, you don't get me. <laughs> mm. Like if you put yourself in the athlete's view and the way that they perceive, you know, this means of communication, and then you kind of put that beside this notion of, we want to create, um, an environment of, of belonging. Like, you know, we want to create an environment where people show up and we feel like we have a lot of things in common, despite the fact that we're not all the same. And I think that that's a big one in the sense that it, it sends a message of like, I don't know if you understand me. And I've seen athletes kind of dig their heels in on that and just never turn the corner. Like they, they think it's unrealistic or they think it's over the top and, they just never turn the corner. They, they never get to that point where they feel like it was reasonable or they saw the value in it. And this actually links back, I think um, to like our, you know, our original um, core uh, topic on this podcast. And I'll just kind of link it back to that in the sense that it is very difficult to build a skill in an area that someone either a doesn't value or B isn't, it's in contradiction to their natural kind of neurobiological wiring. So if we look at that phone one as a skill, right? Like that's what the sport world would tend to do. It's a skill. We just need to teach them and educate and all these things, and then we'll build the skill of being more present or whatever. And, and there's some of that. But in the bigger picture, in every situation, I think you're going to really struggle to build help someone build a skill if you don't consider where it fits in their value system and where it fits in relation to their natural wiring and natural neurobiological systems that's just a fundamental rule that exists everywhere i mean it's as simple as like warm up i've heard so many coaches complain about warm up like this athlete doesn't warm up seriously they don't work hard and warm up this athlete is not focused in warm up they're talking to other people why can't they just warm up properly and in, you know, almost every one of these conversations, we end up tracing it back to, well, where did they learn this kind of notion of warm-up? Like, where did that stem from? Mm-hmm. And I, when I think of that that bigger question, I, I think of, like, some of Carol Dweck's work. She's the author of a book called Mindset. And she shares these really cool examples that, you know, one of them would be, like, um, the really gifted, quote-unquote gifted or talented um, students early on in their life basically get in the situation where they watch coaches and teachers um, give a lot of the other students who aren't as naturally gifted at something you know a lot of feedback and they they hear them saying like just keep working at it like just keep working at it to these other students and so what they end up doing is like attributing hard work and feedback to being less talented if you're being told you have to work hard and if you're being told really anything, <laughs> like you're getting coached a lot,
0: you must not be must, as good.
1: <laughs> you must not be as good as everybody else. That's, that's the environment that I've you know lived in for whatever, like 10, 15 years. So it all comes back to this. You know, when you look at some of these really gifted players and coaches being frustrated in warm up, it's like, well, maybe, you know, their value system got shaped by this Carol Dweck example or something similar to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that definitely rings true when you look at, and again, from a nutritional standpoint of just why certain athletes will gravitate in terms of things like compliance versus others. And oftentimes, there's a component of, of just the natural level, skill level of an athlete and and, and how that's associated with compliance. And, and Bryce, if we come back to the values, skills, and traits, as you mentioned there, if we look at, mm-hmm. you know, the, I'm sure coaches and practitioners and docs listening in, you know, if we think of the rate of change of each of these factors, you know, how long might it take to influence some of these, and are some, you know, going to be quicker timelines than others?
1: Oh yeah, the, the actual rate of change is something that I really haven't found like a firm answer on that. To be perfectly honest with you, but I, I'm very confident, um, you know, in an, I'm very confident in an evidence based way that personality is going to be the longest rate of change for sure. That one is is really difficult. There's new research now that is suggesting that, you know, one of the big five personality traits is openness or openness to experience. And they're now showing that there's some, you know, daily habits and skills and things that you can build in that do influence someone's scores on openness to experience. So they can be influenced it does take a really long time you know like years to, to kind of couple a personality with uh different values and some skills to help shift that natural wiring years um the the values is kind of the middle one so i mean values,
0: just just to jump in there i mean okay, that's yeah. an important really important point isn't it for practitioners coaches i mean mm-hmm. this is something that's going to take years to shift and so if you think that in one visit or one preseason or one season we're going to dramatically change you know th- this is just very unrealistic and, and sets up a situation where there's going to be you know roadblocks and likely failure right
1: oh man big time and and it's this is one of those ones where with personality you know in this in the sport world now and i've done this a, a, on a bunch of different programs and a bunch of different ways there's a lot of testing going on or assessing so, you know, we've done multiple personality assessments with our senior women's team because the, the philosophy there is to meet them where they are. Let's meet each other where we are when it comes to, to personality. So you could do something like the Strengths Finder, or you could do something like the test of um, attentional and interpersonal style. And those things, you know, are generally viewed as like hardware, right? Like it's like the difference between hardware and software. Like software is what coaches are used to working with because most you know motor systems are more like software. Coaches feel and they get a lot of feedback that suggests if you're a really good coach, you can you can make difference um, on people's technique, their tactics, their shooting in a pretty quick amount of time. I mean, we have players come in on day one, and then two, maybe three weeks later, we've you know shaped an entire or shifted an entire group of people to play completely different tactics than what they were doing before. To use different skills on defense, like you know, the, that's the timeline on skills. Um, so, again, like personality, meet them where they are. Skills, yes, you know, if if you're if you're skilled in in your craft of coaching, it you can get good change. And then values are kind of in the middle, and values are in the middle in a kind of a complicated way because you've probably seen lots of different examples. You've already listed a few, like the All Blacks, where the val the, the organization bases its culture on values right so the organization is you know coming up with its core values and then anyone who comes into that you know is really expected to learn um, in a way what the behaviors are that that meet the that kind of funnel up to those values but if your values really don't align with it like this happens all the time like people Like, this is like a retention issue in jobs. Like, if if values don't align, people are really serious about their values. So if they don't align, sometimes it just doesn't work out. And and that's why I think it's such an important decision for coaches um, or any leaders for that matter. You know, you got to look at the timeline of these things and go, what hill am I really willing to die on? Like, are we trying to change something that needs to be better next week? Because talking about, you know, their introversion and meetings and team settings is probably not the way to go. Like, For one, that's going to be the most threatening thing for them because we're challenging who they are at their core. And two, we know that that takes years to change. So we have to try and look at the skills in that situation and and start to figure out how can we build some glue in the skills between my personality and their personality and our values and their values.
0: That's so interesting. And and Bryce, when we think about kind of individual sports versus team sport where we have a lot of teammates who are going to influence this leader follower, this culture that we're building along with the coaches versus a sport like golf or tennis or canoe kayak where you, you know, you've got more Mm -hmm. of a single coach on athlete interaction, you know, any um, insights there or perhaps, you know, experiences that you've had that that highlight any kind of, you know, major differences Mm -hmm. or even, you know, perhaps some insights from one side that we could bring to the other.
1: Oh, it's such a big opportunity in in this space when you've got a one-on-one relationship. So if you've got, you know, just really one coach and then one athlete who are working together towards something really special, and that happens in canoe kayak, kind of like personal coach in a way, Mm -hmm. you've got this incredible opportunity to basically, you know, spend time on this weekly, even daily, if you're really committed to it, because, it's going to be the gateway to your success in the end like if you if you guys don't work on this, this would be my you know suggestion and when I'm in this situation as kind of the third party working with a team that's an athlete coach and myself when we're in this situation, we have to invest in this because when it comes down to it, how you guys work together in the most difficult moments that we're gonna experience which lie ahead of us is going to dictate our performance in that situation. So if it's just the two of you, we can go all in on this. We can figure out exactly who we we can do the personality testing. We can do a values identification. We can talk about the skills that will help glue all this together. I think you got to go all in. And that's in that situation. Now, when you start adding people to the mix, that's where it gets really complicated. And that's why we build these like colorful maps of, um, we build like a personality map. So who's more introverted, more extroverted. And then that dictates how you choose roommates on the road that, you know, you're choosing your leadership group. There's a whole range of um, kind of ripple effect, I guess, of of that in a team setting.
0: Yeah. And I imagine even, you know, obviously we work in basketball primarily. And then as you zoom out to like a football team where you've got 50 individuals, um, you know, and a lot of (laughs) our, nutritionist coaches listening in and working you know american football like what what are some things to take into consideration or some potential wins that could move the needle when when the groups start to get that big that obviously it's going to get more challenging to to be able to sustain that culture and that leader follower dynamic
1: Mm -hmm. yeah as a as a general principle um Everything that, you know, you implement from a coaching standpoint is kind of a rule until they know why. And then once they know why, it becomes a value. And people are more likely to be empathetic of values when they know this, the origin story of them. So, you know, t- something as simple as, like, a coach, a coach wants the team to wear, like, all the same gear on the bus.
0: Let's yeah. say,
1: And the coach is like, guys or girls, we're going to wear all this, the team gear on the bus. Thank you. Have a good day. and then leaves the room right and then you hear like the the chatter of the athletes like why do we have to do that like wow that's stupid like i'm more comfortable on the bus in my sweatpants. i'm more comfortable on the bus in my in my track jacket and so it became a rule right but the coach can turn that into a value if they attach an origin story to it and great stories are what translate things into values so storytelling becomes key in this way. And it really helps bring people together. So if the coach in that situation was able to share some example of when they were young and how much it meant to them, you know, I heard a coach tell a story that was like, my dad played for this team, my grandfather played for this team. When I was given my first hoodie for this team, it was like the most emotional moment of my life because I wanted it so badly. And, you know, you couldn't tell me to take it off let alone convince me to put it on, to go on a bus ride. So a story like that can help people understand like, man, this is bigger than, than just, you know, this rule of wearing it on the bus. And, and that's why pervasive values are so powerful And by pervasive. I mean values that cross contextual boundaries. So, you know, I'll give you two examples of this before we went to world championships, uh, two years ago in Spain, um, we did an exercise called our personal philosophies and basically what that was was i gave everyone this huge list of values like hundreds of of values and they were tasked the athlete staff everybody not just coaches the whole team ist everybody find your values from this list what really really resonates with you if you had to narrow it down to five values then I want you to take those values and I want you to write a personal philosophy statement. So your personal philosophy on excellence using these values. So all five of them have to be in there. So what we're trying to do there is link, how are you going to articulate in relation to what we're trying to do, why these things matter to you? That was, the, that was the point of the exercise. Then we had every athlete when we got to Spain and every staff and this, this was time intensive, but we put together a slide for all of these presentations with pictures and, and photos that they sent us from home, anything that helped tell the story. And they had to share a um, moment from their childhood, a book they had read, and any other life experience that led them to have this personal philosophy with these values in it. And we thought it was going to be pretty good, and it turned out to be like unbelievable, like the first three people who went on day 1 all everybody cried <laughs> like, <laughs> right away it was like this moment where you know my my dad or my grandfather or someone you know taught me this or showed me that and then you know this book that i read and then this other life experience when you package all that together it was like man there's some powerful stuff people shared things that we would have never ever found out this is important because if someone on the team says well i really value respect and someone else on the team is going. Oh, I'm so sick of people saying respect. Like it's such a fluffy, soft environment. Let's just go win. Like, mm-hmm. and and that happens. Like as you know, that you know, there's just very different um, characters in the room. So if you leave it there, you're in trouble. But if someone tells a story about why respect matters to them, and it's related to something that crosses contextual boundaries outside of the room we're in, you automatically have a higher chance of people being empathetic of each other's values. So that's what i mean by crossing contextual boundaries.
0: Yeah, that's tremendous. It's amazing how you know again from an evolutionary biology standpoint we're just so hardwired to take in information from story and it's amazing how whether it's passing along key information or just that from the emotional side um from the connectivity side it's just such a powerful medium, isn't it?
1: Oh, yeah, big time. it's it's necessary and you gotta find. I think you gotta find a way to to facilitate situations where everybody involved gets to share stories and talk about their you know their values and share their own personality tendencies. It can't be top down. It has to be inside out.
0: Awesome, Bryce. Well, listen. If we kind of segue a little bit here to mm-hmm. managing things when we get into some of the social factors, some of the emotional factors, and obviously, you, you know, had a great example there, but. Perhaps on that, on the flip side, when we look at, again, emotions run run high in sport. Just as you mentioned, Um, you know, a lot of different personality types in the room. Coaches, whether they're from a performance staff standpoint or the coaches coming in trying to 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 establish a a culture or a way of doing things, how can we approach some of these kind of social emotional factors? And you know, in today's environment with with COVID nineteen, you know, maybe that's another stressor, another (laughs) element to this that we could throw in. You know, how do we start to manage those things? Or, or maybe you could share, what are, what are some, of the, some of the more common ways in which things maybe start to derail on that front for teams?
1: Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I can, I can really only speak to, I guess, how I approach it and other things I've seen. Um, we do our best to, um, to get measures in all three of these areas. Um, so by that, I mean... You know, engaging in, in personality testing, engaging in values identification, engaging in mental skills assessments. Um, so I think you have to, to show the, the people you're working with right away that that you know all of these things are relevant and um, we want to help you grow in, in all of these areas. And so again, I'll go from an environmental standpoint. We, we just try and set up an environment where it never gets stale. All three of these things you know in my pillar are being integrated every day in some in some way so whether it's the sharing of those you know personal philosophies or another day you know we might do mindfulness for half an hour like and and there's a this is where these things run into each other is like you know as i said before it's it's really difficult to build a skill in somebody who doesn't who doesn't value that thing and and mindfulness is, in my opinion, and, you know, in the, in the opinion of science, um, one of the most powerful self-regulation processes that, that you can engage in. Um, it, it literally changes, you know, it changes your brain in, in a matter of weeks in some cases. So mindfulness is really is, is really great. And from an evidence standpoint, you know, I want to do it as much as we can in our environment. But there's always that cultural barrier. There's always those people who are like, this is stupid. What, you know, it doesn't matter how much science you show me. You know, me sitting there and breathing for 30 minutes is not something I believe in. My family was hardcore. It was all about toughness. And I don't associate toughness and mindfulness. So that like these things are just constantly kind of like running into one another. Mm-hmm. And then you have to try and, you know, execute some strategies to what a lot of people call, you know, buy-in, you know, to, to help influence or, or kind of like, I guess just kind of funnel (laughs) these people (laughs) to this, to this place where they first, you know, they'll start, they'll start in a place of resistance. I resist mindfulness. There's certain behaviors that go with that. Then they'll move to a place of um, like tolerating or acceptance. You know, I, I'll do it, but, I don't believe in it. I'm not getting anything out of it. And then you're trying to get them to that place of mastery, um, where, you know, it's like, I see that this is helping and I want to improve at this skill in and of itself, as well as the things that this skill is, is helping me improve on the court. So in in the spirit of, you know, your, your opening question there, I think mindfulness is a, is a really key, key one. We, we spend a ton of time on that, um, The other one I would say from a skill building standpoint that I've found to be really effective is mental modeling. So by mental modeling, I just mean presenting people with some simple model that shows them how these things work that is undisputed. So we use a mental model for emotions. And there's just certain players I just could not tap into um, for the longest time. And then when you present this mental model and and talk about it in its stages and then get them to share you know kind of their own story in each of these stages of this model it becomes really difficult for them to go no that's not me right it's like well sure. this this is all of us in, in a way <laughs> so th- those would be two big ones mental modeling I find really effective anytime you can apply a model to something Um that simplifies it into its into its phases or stages or steps is is a positive thing.
0: That's terrific. Yeah, two great strategies there. And I remember uh, an anecdote that uh, someone had shared a few years ago at a conference talking about Mike Boyle back when he was the strength coach for the again the Red Sox back in that time. And you know, Big Pappy wasn't into the into the warm up routine, and it was impacting the ability of the other players to sort of do it. And he, you know, he took him aside and said, "Look, I know you're, you know, I know this might not be." your ideal way but you know if you could just pretend like you're into it everyone else will jump on board or, or something to that effect you know he just he, he yeah. sort of let him know that look this is important for everybody else and i know that you're not you know that geared up to do it but if you can you know if you can go through it go through it with a little more enthusiasm then we can get everybody else and just that conversation you know like like a, a light switch off and on then he said, yeah sure no problem And so it's amazing how uh, (laughs) some of those things can then drive everything else, right? But uh, listen, Bryce, I appreciate you carving out so much time today. Last question for you is just around, you know, we're living in a time now where we were gearing up for Tokyo 2020, and now athletes all of a sudden, that's not happening. And now it's going to be 2021. You know, Mm -hmm. how does uh, what's the mental, what are we dealing with here? Obviously, a lot of uh, emotions from athletes, but then how do we... Get athletes back on point, uh, you know, to to go after a goal that was you know not there even months ago. Now they have to re- reshuffle and, re- and retarget.
1: Yeah, for sure. And everyone's reshuffling in their own way. It's it, there's no um, cookie cutter, you know, a, a approach to this. So it's very individualized. You know, some sure. people are had had really set plans in September. Um, in some cases, to retire. So um, rearranging all those retirement plans. But I, I think there's a lot of positives that are coming out of this and you can train yourself to pay more attention to those, to those positives. Um, you know, the skill optimism, um, I view optimism as a skill. I think there's a, there's enough behind this, this term optimism to turn it into a skill. Um, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with this, but you know, um, personalization, uh, pervasiveness, Um, there's certain components of being optimistic that we're starting to now teach athletes to make sure they're thinking in these ways. Um, the other big part of this that I don't think people realized is, you know, there's kind of like a, a, a really simple way to look at stress or pressure. There's an equation to it and it's basically uncertainty times importance. And that kind of rings true for everybody, no matter what situation, like if something's really uncertain, you don't know what the, where the outcome is, is going to land and that thing is really important to you, the combination of those is is really powerful when it comes to stress. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, if something's uncertain, but you don't care how it turns out, That then, you know, <laughs> you don't get stressed. When that announcement was made to extend the Olympics um, by, you know, basically an entire year, that, you know, a lot of people saw that as um, not good or a big challenge, and it is motivationally. Um, but it removed that uncertainty variable, so you're left with this, you know, this this huge chunk of importance in your life. But at least it wasn't uncertain now. So I think a lot of athletes, you know, took peace of mind and being able to start to to think more concretely about when it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the one last piece I would add on that that I think is so important for um, all the athletes in this situation to look at is to, to find the opportunities. I mean you know, it's basically, you know, a threat mindset or a challenge mindset or, you know, some people call it challenge mindset, some people call it opportunity mindset. And I think you gotta sit down and take a look at what are the threats that came out of this? Those are very real, you can't avoid them, you gotta embrace them, you gotta know that they're there. But don't forget to make that opportunity list. Like what is coming out of this that that could benefit you? Right, like how can you look at this and go, I can grow, I can improve, I can get stronger, um, there's a lot of opportunity that's coming out of this, and I think we just have to lean into that, you know, as best we can. Um, the the motivation to train during the, the COVID isolation um, policies is probably <laughs> the biggest hurdle. It's <laughs> you tough know, to shoot
0: when you things. don't have a hoop, right?
1: They're basically being asked to to turn their, you know, their homes into a training environment, so that's a really big challenge and it's an it's not equal not everyone has has an equal opportunity to turn their home into a training environment so those are some of the challenges but certainly looking at the opportunities and and understanding that the uncertainty part of that equation is has been resolved and so now you can kind of you know dig your heels into knowing when they're when the olympics are going to happen
0: amazing bryce listen i appreciate you carving out some time today uh, tremendous, tremendous insights. Where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your great work?
1: Oh, great question. Um, I do have a Twitter account. Um, I'll go back to what I said about not being super active <laughs> on social media. I'm just opening my Twitter right now to make sure I get, <laughs> I get the account.
0: Nice. We'll, we'll um, put the link in the in the show notes for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so my Twitter account is is probably the main one. Inbox in there or you know, however you want to engage. Um, and then the Canadian sports center Atlantic is where, you know, all of my, uh, my, my profiles on there in terms of my role with, uh, with that group. So those are probably the two main ones.
0: Awesome. Bryce. Well, listen, looking forward to, uh, seeing you in Tokyo 2021, right?
1: You got it. All right. Thanks take care so much for having me on here.
0: Thank you for listening to the performance nutrition podcast you enjoyed the content please subscribe on itunes youtube or your favorite podcasting platform to show your support also a special note this summer we'll be launching an online course centered around the work from my new book peak so if you enjoyed the book and looking for a deeper dive into continuing education and performance nutrition as well as continuing education units for strength coaches dietitians practitioners then head over to athleteevolution.org, that's athleteevolution.org, and sign up to our pre-sale list, and you'll be the first to hear about when we launch this exciting course. Lastly, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, be sure to reach out on social media, at Dr. bubbs and fire away with those questions and comments. Thanks for listening, folks, and see you next time.